All right, welcome to Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Tom Morris. He's a former professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and founder of the Morris Institute for Human Values. Uh, Tom is one of the world's top public philosophers and pioneering business thinkers. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books and is a legendary speaker whose electrifying talks re-engage people around their deepest values and reignite their passion for work and life. As of summer 2021, he's also offering consulting and advising services to a few executive clients. And his newest book on business and life is called Plato's Lemonade Stand, Stirring Change into Something Great. Welcome, Tom. Hey, thanks. Uh, it's great to be with you, uh, Alan and Leon. I got to say right away, I totally love you guys. Uh, when I discovered this podcast and, and, and got the invitation to be on it, for crying out loud, I decided, okay, I'm going to go back and research you guys. So I, I've been sampling previous podcasts. I started with podcast number one. Wow. The flow and states. I loved it because you, both you guys were sort of halfway out of frame most of the time, right? <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. guys were cracking yourselves up constantly, which I loved. It reminded me of when I was a young musician and I did my first demo tape and we had laid down the music uh, tracks. And then me and my two best friends, we were uh, around a microphone to sing the lyrics, you know, the first song. And, and so they, oh, they point to us and, and all of a sudden we start singing. We got two words in and we cracked ourselves up so bad. It took us 15 minutes to get over it so we could get serious and sing. But you guys were that way in podcast uh, uh, number one. And you did. Me high, chick set me high, the concept of flow. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and, and he just passed, you know, we yeah, just lost him. Yeah. And people, and he called himself Mike so that the rest of us could pronounce his name, right? But he was, everybody said how gentle he was and how humble he was. And I mean, not surprisingly, he was a guy who lived in flow, right? Yep. And when I heard some of the testimonials this week to him, um, I remembered a short poem by Samuel Minash, which I'll quote in full, um, a pot poured out fulfills its spout. And here was a guy who was being poured out in flow into other people's lives for a very long time. And look how he's affected you and me and, and so many other people. So just a quick testimonial, quick shout out to, uh, to Mike. Oh, and, and, by, and by the way, our first ever guest was actually the guy who you just published, William Irwin. No, come on. Yeah, yeah he, he was, was our first, first, first guest. In May first 2019 guest, with Little Siddhartha, Bill Irwin was our first ever guest. Yep. That's really, that's really sad. He wanted me to publish a little Sid Arthur, but it's before I kind of formed my publishing imprint for other people as well as myself. And I kind of didn't know how to do it then, but I loved yeah. the book, you know? So yeah. I was kind of frustrated. I couldn't participate in it, but yeah, that's an awesome project. I'm glad you had him on. Yeah. Wow. And that's actually really interesting. Yeah. So little Siddhartha is probably one of my like top 10 books. I love that book. So, and yeah. Siddhartha itself was obviously a classic, but what was so interesting about that book is he was able just to pick up from the story and it really honestly felt like Herman Hesse wrote it. Yeah, it, it really did. It was really authentic, you know, and, and speaking of the concept of flow, it really flowed with that original uh, uh, look at the ideas. And, you know, I met, I met Bill because of that and philosophy series, right? Seinfeld mm -hmm. and philosophy, the Simpsons and philosophy, all that stuff. So I was driving in a car once with my son and he was in high school or first year in college. And he said, you need to do a book for that and philosophy series. I said, mm -hmm. what, on what? And he said, superheroes. Why don't you do one called superheroes in philosophy? And mm -hmm. I said, well, I haven't read superhero comics since I was a teenager. 
you know, is there philosophy in the superhero? And he said, are you kidding me? And he starts going yeah. through all these philosophical, you know, justice and vigilanteism and, and what do you do with power and responsibility and all this stuff. And, and he wanted to be a filmmaker. So I said, all right, look, We'll be in that series, but so far all the books have been young professors, assistant professors of philosophy getting their start in life who, you know, reading Lord of the Rings or watching The Matrix and stuff. If, if I do this, I want you to do it with me. We won't do it together. And mm -hmm. I will get all the philosophers, but you got a new job because in all the previous and philosophy books, they haven't had the creators themselves mm -hmm. writing about their stuff. So I want to get the great comic book guys, the Superman, the main Superman guy, the main Batman guy, the main spot. I want to get these guys writing essays about their own characters. Wow. And I want to get some senior philosophers as well as younger philosophers. And let's try to make this happen. And so we did. And we launched it at Comic-Con in San Diego with 100,000 crazy people wearing costumes. Mm -hmm. And to get these people doing philosophy was just awesome. Wow. And Thanks to the Bill Irwin. <laughs> wow. And these were the creators of the comic books? Yeah, we got we we got we got the creators of the comic books to join with us philosophers, you know, uh, and we got the like I say, the top Superman guy, the, the guy who was doing also Smallville on TV at the time. We got the top uh, one of my favorite Batman writers. We got one of the oldest uh, uh, Batman writers. We got just unbelievable. So we had this huge attendance at our panel discussion at Comic-Con because everybody wanted to see all these famous guys who had agreed to do philosophy and they had agreed to do it. Just like when I wrote my book about Harry Potter, you know, if Harry Potter ran General right, Electric, right. Mm -hmm. nobody really appreciated that J.K. Rowling was a classics major and she really knows ancient philosophy and she built it into her stories and nobody was talking about that, you know, right. and um, everybody was talking about Potter and, and the wands and the spells and the magic and the creatures and but nobody's talking about the philosophy so when these guys heard we were going to talk about the philosophy they were so excited because likewise in comic books it's like okay. Superman versus Spider-Man, who's going to win? You know, it's all that kind of stuff amongst the aficionados. And we were talking about the real ideas. And so they got they got super excited about it. Wow. No, I mean, this is great for public philosophy. I mean, yeah. there's even a, since we're on the topic, mm -hmm. uh, a new movie came out, an animated film. It's called Injustice. Uh, it has oh. Superman in there, Batman, all these characters. Essentially, um, it's it's a story about what would happen if Superman, the one who's heralded as as the symbol of being like what what's best in us what if he turned evil what would that be like ah. what kind you know what if he wanted to make sure crime stopped what if what would he do uh would he yeah. become tyrannical and yeah. and that kind of thing and then you kind of see the flow of where that went and it was actually kind of scary mm -hmm. uh superman wow. really actually became totalitarian kind of dictator <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeez, it was, that's a it was project for our time, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's funny you mention that because I just finished a book that it's taken me 20 years to write. I mean, good mm -hmm. thing I didn't start it now at age 69, right? Uh, but mm -hmm. I started it 20 years ago and I call it, uh, it's my agents pitching it to publishers right now. It's called uh, The Frankenstein Factor, Monster Success and Massive Failure. And I use Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein, and her other book, uh, one of our other books that nobody knows about, but it's about a virus in the 21st century that wipes out everybody. I mean, can you believe it? It's called The Last Man. And I use her ideas in those two books to frame ideas from Gilgamesh and Beowulf, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Moby Dick, Don Quixote, Sinclair Lewis, uh, some of Sinclair Lewis's books, sort of world wisdom about how really talented and, and really powerful people can end up 
unleashing into the world monsters they can't control. And mm-hmm. what you just said about Superman, I mean, it's a great, great thing about this. I mean, how do we know that talent and power are going to be used for good, right? You give somebody who's really smart, who has a lot of talent, sometimes you give them power and you get the opposite of what you hope for. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's very cool. I wrote that down. I'm going to try to uh, check that one out. Yeah, it's it interesting because it starts out with good intentions, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But somehow yeah. it goes down this this path nobody saw coming, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Wait, so, so what happened? Well, I was going to say we- something Victor Frankenstein. He started yeah. out with decent intentions. I just want to do something big. I want to go someplace no scientist has ever gone before. I want to do something nobody has ever managed to accomplish, kind of the ultimate act of creation. Mm-hmm. I want to create a person who can be a creator. I, I want to do this great thing. And of course, now confronting you know AI and robotics and all this kind of stuff, Frankenstein has taken on a new, a new meaning as a cautionary mm-hmm. tale. Uh, for everybody. So, so I'm hoping the, the next book I publish will help people kind of think through. It's kind of, I use it kind of a threefold thing, motives, means, and methods. Mm-hmm. If a smart person, talented person um, uses the wrong motives, means, and methods, things can go awfully, terribly wrong. And uh, we see that all around us, right? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg never wanted to take down democracy around the world. He wanted to help people get dates, right. you know? Right, right. Uh, he had perfectly good intentions to start with. So how does this how does this play out in people's lives? And maybe, we, maybe I'll come back sometime. We can talk about that when that book's out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about this current book, right? So, <laughs> all right, let's I, want, <laughs> so I want to start off reading a blurb from Tom's book, and then we could talk about why change is so scary. So yeah. Tom wrote, we sometimes wish we could slow or even stop the incessant flurry of transition and alteration in the world around us mm-hmm. because, and this is our third beginning fact, change is often scary. But in light of what we've just seen about change, this, this can initially seem to be a puzzle. We're usually not frightened by pervasive things, persistent things, or anything that's happening all around us all the time. We're typically more afraid of the surprising, shocking, eerily unusual, disturbingly novel, or unparalleled ph- phenomenon. I love that. Okay, so Tom, what is it about change that's so scary for us, right? Because like, if we think about the world just on the bigger picture, I mean, we're always changing, right? So fluctuations are always a part of our lives. So how come as human beings, we're just naturally so resistant to it? Yeah, that was a puzzle for me, right? Because you, you, you've posed it really well. We're surrounded by this stuff. And usually we're not, we're not scared by stuff that's going on all the time everywhere, you know, constantly. Right. But usually we don't use, when I first got interested in this project, and maybe we'll talk about that too, but when I first got interested in this project, I tried to find out what the great philosophers had written about change, of course, you know, because that's the book I was going to write. Um, it was almost impossible to find any a book called Change, you know, by some great philosopher or an essay or, or title that. Right. Often we don't use the label itself except for something really big. Uh, it's almost like you know, fish probably don't have a word for water, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, birds may not have a word for air. We, we don't have a word for change. Because, I mean, we, we don't use our word for change because it's so pervasive, but, mm-hmm. but it's like when we do, it's because it's something really big. And when it's something really big, it's something really disruptive. And when it's something really disruptive, it opens the Pandora's box to uncertainty. And that probably is the fear of all fears the fear behind every other fear. Um, and it's cool that um, I was writing a novel. I wrote eight novels a few years ago. I never intended to write a novel. Uh, my wife said, I asked her once, you ever think I'll write a novel? And she said, no. 
And I said, why you say that? She said, you, you pay no attention. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> she said, you don't pay attention to life. You're an idea guy. You don't pay attention to what's going on around mm-hmm. you. And so I, I paid no attention to her and I wrote uh, eight novels. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> only because it came to me as a movie playing in my head, guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like I was sitting at breakfast one morning and this movie starts playing in my head. And I'm seeing this old man, this young boy, and they're sitting in the desert. It turns out to be Egypt in 1934. And I, I, start, I run upstairs to where I'm sitting right now. I start typing. And for five years, the movie played in my head most every day. And I wrote these eight novels of over a million words. And at one point in the first book, the old man, my Gandalf, my Dumbledore, my wise old man, the teacher I always needed, uh, he says to his nephew, who just turned 13, who's really worried about something that's getting ready to happen because of all the uncertainty involved. The old man says to him, have you ever considered the possibility that uncertainty is a gift? And when I heard my character say that, I thought, what? Mm-hmm. I mean, uncertainty produces anxiety and fear. And, you know, it's something we don't like. And it occurred to me on my morning walk this morning that throughout all of human history, a lot of people have embraced the gods as a way to tame uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But maybe the gods want to tame us instead. Mm-hmm. And this character says, consider the possibility that uncertainty is a gift. And I'm thinking, what? And then he starts talking about it. And it's like, whoa, I've never thought about this stuff before. You know, uncertainty is an, is an open field of possibilities. Uncertainty is all about freedom and adventure and exploration and discovery and creation. And, and suppose we, you know, if nothing were uncertain, we'd be like monorail trains, right? We'd just be running it, but we're ATVs. We can go anywhere we want. And the, the, the uncertainty allows for that. And so, I mean, I, when I was writing Plato's Lemonade Stand, which by the way, it took me, um, 15 years to write. I think I wrote 25 versions of it. It had Mm -hmm. six different titles. So I was going through change as I was writing about change. But I think, Leon, in in a very long answer to your question, (laughs) I think that big disruptive change opens this box to uncertainty. And because people don't really understand the gift of uncertainty, because they fear, and that's often the case in human life, we fear what we should embrace and we should we embrace what we should fear. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, people don't know what to hold on to and what to let go. Half of wisdom is knowing what to cling to in your life, what to hold tight to, and what to let go. Right. And and people are l- letting go of stuff that they ought to hold on to, and they're holding, squeezing stuff they ought to let go of. And and that's why we've got so much turmoil in the world. But uh, I think in a long answer to your question, it's it's that dynamic playing out that people just think they want everything to be predictable and uh, they get really worried when it's not yeah because predictable is safe right when when you know what to expect you know that you know you you know the lay of the land but anytime you're thrown off and you don't know what to expect your whole world goes into disarray but the thing is um the people who can embrace that uncertainty uh and move with the change aren't actually scared of it right and, yeah. and that's why a lot of people who are still afraid to um afraid to change look to those people can I, for certain can i disagree with you 
please. Okay, so <laughs> I, and I want to bring yeah, in. No. I actually want to bring in a personal anecdote. So I had a session with a client of mine yesterday. So he's a young guy, about like twenty one, turning twenty two soon. So he is. Um, so he has OCD, and so just for the listeners with obsessive compulsive disorder, it's an intense fear of uncertainty. So people with mm-hmm. OCD, pretty much they in their minds can't tolerate uncertainty. So he's gotten to the point now where he's completely isolated himself so he's in college but you know so it's it's been covid and they're pretty much doing classes online Mm -hmm. he's only like doing one in-person class and he's really miserable so he's like you know i'm like really unhappy he's like i've been like severely depressed for the past couple of months and so we're trying to now kind of talk to him about potentially getting out and you know meeting people maybe joining clubs and he won't do it right he's like no he's like it's too much uncertainty it's too scary um okay so then we talk about the alternative right and then so in our kind of understanding we kind of ask the question of what is it like or what would it be like if you were to do this long term. So imagine life, right? So complete certainty, right? You're going to be safe in your room for, let's say, the next hypothetically year, right? All you do is you sit in your room, you go to the Zoom class. Uh, let's say maybe you show up for the like one class that you have. You know, sometimes you come, sometimes you don't. But let's say you don't speak to anybody, right? You're kind of like a ghost. And then you sit in your room most of the time and you're living the exact life that you're living now. And imagine, let's rewind this in a year. What would happen? And he said, Oh, I'd like be miserable. He's like, I'd be even more miserable than I am now because it's prolonged. So the idea there is that you have people. Who and this is look, this is kind of like my, just my understanding. You're obviously welcome to disagree with me, but it's not that I think that people aren't afraid, it's just that I think when they actually put themselves in the alternative, they see that the alternative is so much worse. So, like, what I hope is going to happen at some point as we keep talking about it is he's going to see like this life is so fucking hard, like the way I'm living it, that just joining a club or even just once going to a club and just maybe talking to like one person is way better than what I'm doing now. Yeah, it's. Almost like yeah. you guys have seen different facets of a really complex situation. And uh, you, you, that's a great use of the imagination, right? Uh, I, I used to have a poster, one of the Einstein posters on my door at Notre Dame that said imagination is more important than knowledge. Right. Because in the classroom, I was always trying to spark people's imaginations. Um, and the Stoics, with a lot of their wisdom about controlling our emotions, uh, a, a lot of it consists in how do you use your imagination? You know, how do you how do you uh, spin out scenarios about what's happening, what's not happening? The irony is that the people who want who think they want certainty because they want control, and and I've often speculated that that was the uh, the original sin and the uh, the the biblical story of the Garden of Eden, the desire for control. Nobody else is going to tell me what to do, right? I, I, I'm going to decide for myself. Um, the people who want control, but in a world of certainty, they want to control what exactly, right? Because it's only when we have new things happening that we can even exercise any kind of interesting control. If everything is predictable, if everything is laid out, let's take some scientific determinism, a Laplacian universe to its extreme. And what kind of control do you have in that? You have no control whatsoever. It's only in this world where we've got this, uh, We've got these quantum fields with stuff bubbling up through, you know, the the the, the probabilities and the and uh, the uncalled the randomness, the, the randomness. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. where you can exercise control that will give you a sense of agency, a sense of creativity. So this is interesting stuff, isn't it? Yeah, right. And uh, back to the Stoics, right? I mean, you, you can't necessarily control circumstances, but you can control how you react to them, right? Yeah. Right. So that's something that you do have control over. So even if you are faced with things that you're not that are novel to you, right, you can always sort of rely that on, on that if you're in the moment, you, tr- you have faith, right, in, yeah. in, in, in yourself and in your faculties, yeah. that you can make it through these 
I love that. I love it. By the way, just I, I don't want to get too off topic here, but there's like a new interesting area of psychological and psychiatric research where there's this field called deep brain stimulation. And then so for what they do is they pretty much implant the chip in you and you can actually control this chip with your phone. So like it literally, and yeah, you could control the electrical stimulation and the impulses to your brain. Does it go to your amygdala or something? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So what's so cool about that is speaking of confidence, right? And I really want to touch on this in the philosophical context too. So what people, what we see, what doctors see is that essentially people with a severe OCD, it's not really about certainty. So uncertainty per se is not the main issue. The issue is the lack of confidence. Going back uh -huh. to the stoical response, right? It's the lack of the belief that I can respond well and I can respond effectively to all of the uncertainty and all of the randomness in my world. So it's like, it's not so much that I, you know, um, that I want to have a, like, let's say a sense of safety or certainty because, you know, it's just, it makes me feel better about life or, you know, going back to that distinction, this is the life that I think is best for me. No, no, no. It's just, I'm not able to tolerate the other life because I'm just incapable of doing so. See, that's, that's very, that's very insightful. It's funny. Uh, the, I've, I've, in my career as a philosopher, I've known a lot of championship athletes in various sports. And one thing I've noticed about them is they have this thing about confidence. They bring their confidence to their circumstances. Whereas most of us depend on our circumstances to give us confidence. Right. Absolutely. And uh, mm -hmm. the Stoics had this, I got interested in the Stoics back in the nineties and before it was a thing, you know, uh, I was, somebody actually asked me to write a, a book about the Stoics. I thought, really? Because I love the Stoics, but I didn't think anybody else cared back then, you know, but mm -hmm. I ended, wait a minute, maybe I've got a copy right here, a little product placement, the Stoic art of living. So mm -hmm. this is way before the wave of interest in Stoicism, right? And, and apparently, according to the president of the International Association of Stoics or whatever it was called in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, he said, man, you've discovered aspects of the Stoics that I'd never thought about. I said, really? He said, yeah, for example, this, you have this idea of natural joy that you, there it is in the Stoic writings, you know, but I'd never noticed it before because I was all, always about the Stoics, you know, let's, let's control our emotions. Let's control our emotions. You know, let's dampen things down. Don't get too excited. Don't get too depressed, you know, just kind of even keel all this. But he said, you gave me the sense that it, it, the Stoics were all about peeling back anything that would keep us from our natural joy. And he said, there's this other thing. Like I had, um, this attitude that the Stoics are about, okay, two kinds of things in the world, things we can affect or control, things we can't affect and control. Forget about the, the, uh, the, the things we can't control or affect and just, just concentrate on the things we can. But the cool thing that a lot of people haven't noticed in the Stoics is this idea that once you do focus on the things you can control, which is very little, um, you begin to expand the circle. Hmm. And you begin to increase the things you can control and the things you can influence, which is more important than the thing because you'll never control a lot, but you can influence a lot. And so you can expand uh, the circle. And so the Stoics weren't about hunkering down philosophical anesthesia, a protective shield around us so that we're not disturbed by anything. They were actually about empowering us if we take them right. Oh, yeah, I love that. And so uh, that's actually a concept that I use to kind of in my sessions where I tell people that it's not, yes, there's so many things that you can't control, but you can actually try to influence. So it's not black and white. It's not like, you know, and I don't really necessarily, so I don't want to say I disagree with the stoic conception because I don't, but I think there's nuance there. So if anything, it's not, yeah, it's not, here's the things that I can't control. Here's the thing that I can't control. It's, there's more to it than that. There's, here's the thing I can't control. Here's the thing I can't, and here's the thing that I can try to influence. So there's yeah, this kind of. Absolutely. Because, and there's a concept of power 
things over which I have some power that I have no control over, really, but right. I do have some power. And then you back off from the power to just the influence. And then you back off from the influence to, well, do I know somebody who has some influence, right? And so there are all these, there's all these concentric circles that, and why don't the Stoics give us that? It's kind of an easy answer. A lot of Seneca, the Seneca's letters, he was writing to a really young guy and teaching him philosophy for the first time. A lot of Epictetus's stuff, it was just in his beginner classes. It's not like Aristotle's books, his notes, his books are really his notes for his advanced students. Mm -hmm. From Seneca and Epictetus, we get their notes basically from their beginning students. And uh, Arian writes down Epictetus's stuff, and Arian was kind of a beginning student, and uh, at the time, and then uh, Marcus uh, Aurelius, he's mm -hmm. kind of busy as emperor of Rome, right? So he's writing these notes at nighttime, you know, before he goes to bed, what have I learned today? And uh, he's not giving us the most nuanced uh, account of everything possible, but he's wanting to get us started. Right. Wow. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because I think when, I mean, maybe this is just my own kind of misunderstanding, but it does seem like when people, uh, look, I don't want to I don't want to be too critical. So I'm going to hesitate to say this. But stoic philosophers do seem a little bit rigid. And it does kind of seem like when they, you know, when they put forth these treaties, they're like, yeah, well, this is just the world, the way the world is. And you read it and you're like, yeah, this is great. It makes sense. But I think one of the major criticisms and rightfully so that's hurled against them is literally that simplicity, that it's way too simple, that there's much more nuance to life than the way it's presented. So with stoical thinking, I definitely think there's a lot of utility to it. But like yes. you said, I really think of it more as a starting point than an end. One. Yeah, right. If you think of it as a starting point then then yeah. it's fine you, you can start from simplicity just to get certain basic ideas uh in play. for example uh um no man can be in the same river twice for he's not the same man and it's not yeah. the same yeah, river yeah. right so yeah. going back to what we we're talking about at the beginning like change is the only constant right, right. there's yeah. Yeah. change is always happening so you can glean something like that from there and then but, what you know, do you do with it how do you use right. it right that's the that's the thing and i mean we're like reading epictetus for example let's don't pick on these guys too much but um it's <laughs> just like if your son dies mm -hmm. uh you should react to that emotionally exactly the same way you would if a guy across town his son dies right? right because in the same it's the same thing you know somebody who came into the world to die has died so you're not in terrible grief and all torn up about some guy across town, his son died. Well, you should react to your son dying the same way. And so I'm, I write in the story of living. I said, whoa, slow down. Maybe grief, like many emotions, has a cognitive dimension. And you've, if you don't grieve the death of someone you love, you are not acknowledging the value of that person in your life. And uh, so there's some stuff in the Stoics that, you know, you can see his principles lead him to say such a thing as that, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he, he's got good intentions. He doesn't want us going around all, uh, you know, distraught all the time about everything that happens. But it's almost like, Epictetus, you can help us without pushing us over the edge of the cliff here. You know, I mean, uh, so you have to learn with the Stoics how far to follow them. And then when to take your own path. That's true of a lot of great philosophers. Some great philosophers who get things wrong still bring us into the neighborhood of a great truth. And if we can take their hints rather than always following their words, uh, we can make progress ourselves.
Yeah. And I mean, even thinking about Democritus and the atom, right? I mean, obviously his conception of the atom wasn't exactly what we would think of today, but it was a great starting point. And you get the same thing from Heraclitus with the kind of concept of the river, right? I mean, yes, it's not the same river, but it sort of is, right? But I mean, yeah. you kind of get what he was trying to say, that he was trying yeah. to guide us to a certain general principle. Mm -hmm. And uh, going back a little bit to the things that we can influence, right? Uh, uh, I remember, in, uh, and this is from a past speech, I, I, and of course, this is something that you've developed, but... Um, having a clear purpose, right? Or a clear conception, using your imagination to um, craft a purpose for yourself. That lets you have a direction that you wanna um, uh, give your brain to sort of uh, head towards. Right. You, yeah. Essentially, uh, you're, forgive me for using this term, I know you're probably familiar with this, but like uh, your reticular activation system, like the things that you notice automatically based yeah. on what you believe in, what you imagine yep. it's it's interesting what directions you can take yourself in if you manipulate not manipulate but you adjust what your beliefs about the world are mm -hmm. yep, absolutely. that's right yeah, yeah it, it is interesting right uh so aristotle had this conception you know using a term from archery kind of the big sport and military activity of his time uh the idea of a telos a target a bullseye that we are all teleological beings. We need a target, we need a bullseye, we need something to aim at. And, and the motivational speakers of, of the past 150 years have kind of seen the, the tip of the iceberg of what that's all about. You know, they've said, oh, good, yeah. You, you don't want your life to be aimless. You wanna have an aim. You want a goal, you want something to shoot for. That makes sense, you know, so set goals. Everybody should set goals. But what you're talking about, Alan, it goes so much deeper whether it's use gestalt theory or whether you use, I mean, there, there are various different approaches to this about how if you imagine, not just set with your intellect, but also with your imagination, you have a vivid vision of what you'd like to see happen. Uh, you begin to notice things all around you that you wouldn't have noticed before, things that might serve you in your quest for this goal or else correct you to set a different goal instead, but you begin, it's like, you know, I had a, uh, once when I was a philosophy professor, I wanted, to, I decided I want a convertible. I want to buy a convertible and uh, philosophy professors can't afford convertibles, but I wanted one, you know, so I started getting literature and I liked at the time a Saab convertible, yeah, an odd thing. You don't see a lot of them at the time, you know, but so I got the brochures, you know, I got all the brochures, glossy brochures. I'm thinking about a Saab convertible. And then all of a sudden in South Bend, Indiana, it's as if Saab convertibles are popping up at stoplights all over town, you know? I'm saying, what is going on? And I was seeing all these Saab convertibles. Well, of course, I was noticing things that had been around me already all the time, but I had been thinking about a Saab convertible. Ultimately, I decided uh, not to buy it because um, in South Bend, Indiana, they have about five convertible worthy days a year, and I could test drive on those days. <laughs> But it gave me a great example about how, yeah, I got a clear conception of something. You, your, your life starts to organize itself. And it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, and, uh, you know, it used to be that motivational guys would say, write down your goals. You know, my mm -hmm. wife actually had a class uh, in phys ed at UNC Chapel Hill where the instructor said, you guys, your problem is you have no goals. You got to write down goals. Get a little piece of paper, write down some goals. Your goals will come true. He said, everybody's kind of rolling their eyes. But after class, she sees people with little pieces of paper with things like BMW written on it, just in case, you know, you don't know. But uh, the, the magic is not writing down goals. The magic is using the clear borders of language to articulate, to clarify 
the discipline of language to clarify what might be vague and murky thoughts, uh, whether you talk through goals with a friend, whether you write them down, whatever, but it's the conceptualization that has this tremendous power on what we then begin to notice. And that, that in times of change is really important too. A lot of people in times of change, like, like the OCD, a guy in his room, they hunker down, they go into the storm shelter, right? Till the storm passes. But it's the people who begin to set goals. And people think, well, how can I set goals in a time of change? Because my goals are going to be stable and the environment's constantly changing. Well, no, I mean, your goals don't have to be engraved in marble, right? Mm -hmm. uh, write them in an erasable pencil, you know, but, but they get you noticing things. And it's when a lot, I've never heard anybody make this point, but I did my PhDs in two departments at, at Yale philosophy and religious studies. I wanted to leave no ultimate stone unturned, you know. So, so in religious studies, you begin to notice that in all the world religions, which seem to be so different on the surface, uh, they all stress the power of uh, focus and attention, mm -hmm. what you pay attention to. And one of the best books I've ever read on ethics, Iris Murdoch, a little book, she, she wrote this little book called uh, The Sovereignty of Good. And she said, all the modern discussion of ethics is about focuses on the choice, the decision. You know, I got to do this or I do this. Which one do I take? She said most of the moral life is about what you pay attention to each and every day, what you notice, what you value. You're building up structures of value that when time for decision comes, more times than not, it's already made. All you've got to do is discover how this structure of values applies to this situation. But it's all about what you pay attention to. And if you have no goals, you just kind of randomly pay attention in the world, or you kind of don't. Uh, a theology professor uh, I had at Yale um, is a famous guy, Hans Fry. I went into his office once, hmm. and uh, he said to me, Tom, I think most people suck the foam off the beer of life hmm. and never drink the beer itself. And I said, Hans, what do you mean? He said, man, people live superficially. Uh, spirituality is about depth. And so is philosophy. It's about not just skimming the surface, not just sucking off the foam. It's about drinking deep of the beer itself. I said, okay, I made the right choice to be a philosopher then. <laughs> wow. And I, I like it because uh, something else that you've said before is um, vague thoughts can't give you specific results, right? And, and a lot of people, um, even when they first uh, hear about this kind of thing, the power of the mind, the power of imagination, what, what you can do if you truly start setting these goals. A lot of times they don't know that you have to be extremely, very, very specific. So yeah. this way, you you know, kind of where you want to head. And of course, you can upgrade it as time goes on. Mm -hmm. um, and I know, by the way, even goal setting or imagining what you see for yourself is just like an element of what might lead you towards success. Right. Um, Absolutely. Well, I, look I was, at you guys, you guys in this podcast, right? When you you had a goal, uh, presumably at some point you said let's do a podcast right and yeah. but and, and so look look at where you are now i mean you probably could not possibly have imagined early on in the early stages of this idea let's do a podcast together what it would amount to and the people you'd have on here and the things you'd yeah. learn and all this but you started yourself in a direction you set yourself on a journey you put yourself on a path and then and then look what happens I just really, really, really hurt for all the people in the world who don't do that, who, mm -hmm. who, who don't put themselves on a path and who just kind of wander lost, you know, 
uh, it's such a powerful thing in our lives. Oh man. So, I mean, I, I hope I can ask this question. It's a little bit more personal because I want to go back to your other book though, about uh, the Oasis within. So, oh, yeah. I, I, and obviously you, no pressure to answer this question, but I definitely am curious. So you said right now, um, you know, it's kind of sad that like other people aren't experiencing these things. Right. But then you write this book about a mentor, right? A mentor who obviously guides a child to, I'm assuming, you know, these kind of experiences where you kind of put yourself out into the world, you get recognition for your efforts and you're pretty much accepted and praised and adored for, you know, whatever your contribution is. So do you feel like it was, um, do you think that in writing that book, because you said before that it was kind of like the mentor that you didn't have, do you feel like in some way it was difficult for you to get to that point because you weren't able to find a mentor that was able to do that for you? And, you know, the bigger question here is I wonder if anybody can really do that without a mentor. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, that's a very great question. I mean, here's a funny thing. I grew up in a difficult household. I was an only child and nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So I, my mother told me there's no money for college. So, you know, figure out what kind of job you want. I got a scholarship, uh, a letter in the mail. I've been nominated for a Moorhead scholarship. We had kind of had to ask somebody, what's a Moorhead scholarship? It was a free ride to Chapel Hill, to UNC Chapel Hill. And because I was a Moorhead scholar, I ended up having a free ride to Yale for six years for two PhDs, you know? And so it was unbelievable. But I grew up in a house where my mother had been raised in an orphanage, even though her mother was alive. She was put in an orphanage. And she didn't know how to be a mother from age six to age 16. And uh, my, my, my dad and my mother have this really difficult relationship. And my mother was like only criticizing me all the time as I was growing up and never giving me any uh, praise or anything like that. Uh, except one time I wrote a letter to John Kennedy and, and Jackie Kennedy during the presidency. I drew cartoons for their kids, mm -hmm. uh, for their two kids. And uh, I got a letter from the White House as a, I was in first grade, third grade, third grade. I was in third grade. I got a letter from the White House from Letitia Baldridge, Mrs. Kennedy's social secretary, thanking me for my, my drawings for Caroline and John John, saying how much the kids had enjoyed the drawings and how much Mrs. Kennedy had enjoyed the drawings. And, and before I didn't know, my mother gave this letter to the principal of my school and they called an assembly and the principal of my school read the letter from Mrs. Kennedy to me, from Letitia Ballridge to me. And that was the first word of praise my mother ever uttered uh, to me, maybe the last as well. <laughs> and so I, I, I had this, this, this difficult to please uh, uh, mom. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until my late 50s that that had created in me a kind of need to please people and need to be successful and need to be, which was a good thing in a lot of ways, but it was oppressive in other ways too. At my whole career at Notre Dame, I never walked down a hallway. I don't think I was always jogging. I was always in a hurry. Everything was urgent, mm -hmm. right? And I just had to do great stuff. Well, I ended up deciding at the age of 58 or 59, I'm going to go through, I'm going to go see a good therapist and find out how my childhood has affected me as an adult. And so I went through two years, pretty intense therapy, and it was hard, and it was painful, and it was awesome. <laughs> that opened the door to the most creative period I've had in my life ever since then. And it was shortly after that I started writing these novels. And the therapist, actually, it was while I was still finishing up with this great therapist. And he said to me, oh, your old man, Ali, is the father you always wanted to have. Mm 
because yeah. people, he's the wise old man. So people say to me, oh, you're Ali, right? In all these stories. I mean, they're eight, they're eight novels. You're Ali. I said, no, most of the time I'm, I'm Waleed. I'm the kid. I'm, I'm learning. Uh, Ali's taught me stuff I, I never even thought about. And uh, it was going through what Plato told us to do, right? Self-examination, the unexamined life is not worth living. How many years had I preached that without actually really doing it? digging mm -hmm. to the core, thinking just a little bit of self-knowledge was fine. No, it's a lifetime deep dive. And only when I did that was I liberated to go through the most creative period of my life, which I'm still in. And I thought, to, I think to myself, why couldn't I have done this in my 20s, in my 30s, right? Because in philosophy of religion, which was my specialty um, at Notre Dame, people kept saying, how do you know the next big thing before anybody else? You always know the next big topic. You're the first guy to write before anybody else picks up on it. And I said, I don't know. It's just this thing in, in my family. My father was that way. His mother was that way. It's uncanny ability to know stuff. And I think I've always had that. But the creative use of it came when I kind of got these blockages out of my life, right? And so then I get asked to a company, a bank is being bought by a bigger bank. And I'd spoken to the smaller bank twice for all their executives. True success, if Aristotle ran General Motors, one of them calls me and says, one of the top executives calls me and says, hey, we got a real morale problem. We're being bought by this bigger bank. On the day of the sale, our boss, the guy who's hired you a couple times already, he gets $20 million. But on the day of the sale where he gets $20 million, the rest of us don't know if we're going to have a job. Because that big bank, they have... 9,000 credit card people. Uh, our bank is all about credit cards and we've got 6,000 credit card people. We know they're not gonna end up with 15,000 credit card people. So nobody thinks they're gonna have a job. Morale has plummeted, productivity has plummeted, everybody's depressed. Have you ever written about change? Have you ever spoken on change? I said, no, I, I never have. Well, could you, could you figure out how to help us deal with this big change? And I said, okay okay, let me give it a shot. And so that's what led to the book Plato's Lemonade Stand. But it was at this period of my time where I had just opened myself up to a new level of understanding and creativity that I was able to, to be helpful to these people. And I gave, I gave a talk, 45-minute talk called The Art of Change and to 750 top executives of this company. And I started getting deluged with emails. People said, you changed everything in that room that day. You changed the whole morale and attitude of this whole company. This is awesome. We still don't know if we're going to have a job, but now we're not worried about it because you've equipped us to deal with the mm -hmm. uncertainties we face. Right. And then so practically speaking, then what is that equipment, right? What do the ancient philosophers have to teach us about change? Well, you know, that's what I always think in terms of philosophical ideas. I mean, when I'm not doing strict metaphysics and epistemology and stuff like that, when I'm doing like what we're doing now, which sometimes I call philosophical anthropology, right? Philosophy on the human condition. Yep. I'm always trying to discover tools, tools people can use, and tools that have this twofold aspect. On the one hand, they're really simple, but on the other hand, they're really powerful. I think the best tools are that way. They're simple, but they're powerful. Give me a tool that's complicated and you can't do much with it. It's not going to be very interesting, mm -hmm. but I want one that's simple and you can do a lot with it. So, so I built the book around what I, what I call, I said, you know, some people are just really good at change and other people are just really not. So maybe there's an art of change. Maybe there's a skilled behavior. So I started looking into the philosophers with that in mind. And I said, okay, there are three arts of change. The art of self-control, 
the art of positive action and the art of achievement. The art of self-control, calm down. You know, something happens. Don't rush to judgment. Don't rush to judgment. First thing, that's what everybody does. Everybody rushes. Yeah, this is terrible. This is awful. This is the worst thing ever. I mean, how often have we said that? And it's turned out to be totally different from what we thought, right? Or right. this is great. This is awesome. Best thing ever happened. Said by every lottery winner ever who's broke five years later. You know, mm -hmm. So it's like, let's just slow down. Don't rush to judgment. Secondly, value the right things. If you value the wrong things, good change is going to upset you. Right. So value the right thing. OK, well, what does that mean? So you have to figure that out. Use your imagination well. When a big change happens, the imagination runs out of control. Everybody's doing worst case scenario stuff. It's like, oh, this, you know, and it's not just rushing to judgment. It's rushing to judgment on steroids when the imagination gets involved. I mean, you know, I tell a story in the book about my family wanting me to get a gas, wanting to get a gas grill. And uh, they always wait. So I, I never wanted a gas grill. I read articles about how dangerous propane is. You know, propane is colorless and odorless. And it can kill you in, in minutes, you know, and it, it's like you know, brain cells, the damage, you know, destroys brain. And so I didn't want to get my, my wife wanted a gas grill. So she knows I'm not really handy. So she bought it, got the guys to put it together at Sears and to deliver it, assemble, fully assemble, right? And so the guys come up in the truck and they give, put the gas grill in the backyard. We tell them what it is. And then they bring this propane tank and they said, we're not allowed to connect the pro. We're not allowed by law to connect the propane tank before we bring it in the truck, you know? And I figure that's because, you know, the propane would leak and it would kill the guys in the truck and they'd never make it to my house. Uh, so I, you have to put on the propane tank yourself. Okay. So I go into the garage, literally guys, I go into my garage and get some pliers, a screwdriver, a hammer. I didn't get a saw. Okay, I'm not that stupid, but I get all these ridiculous tools and, and I'm holding my breath. I'm taking a deep breath and I'm running the propane tank and I'm trying to get it on. It won't screw on and, and I'm running out of air. And so I run across the yard where I can breathe without any propane leaking into my lungs and I'm breathing again. I'm breathing and I hold my breath. I run, and my wife looks out the window and I'm running back and forth across the backyard trying to hook on this tank, you know. And I come in the house and I say, Look, I've I, I breathed too much of this propane. I'm getting sick. I'm getting nauseous. I think I'm going to pass out. And, and my wife said, Well, maybe you should call the guy at Sears and see what you're doing wrong. And I said, Yeah, I mean, you're looking pale, you know. I mean, okay. So I call the guy guy Sears and I said you know told him what I was doing and he said well where'd you where'd you get your propane and I said you guys you guys brought the tank and he said no the tank is empty I was being asphyxiated by my imagination guys yeah. asphyxiated yeah. by my I, I love to tell that story because that's the power of the imagination right there and I, right. I, I know Leon with the kind of people you you counsel you see that all the time right, right. you see the imagination <laughs> out of control so that's a that's a that's a way I, I now when something big happens. Um, also, also, if I could say one more thing about this. Shoot. Mm -hmm. Shoot. Um, yeah. So I did the little book, The Oasis Within, and uh, a therapist comes up to me at a big dinner party. Uh, she's she's um, from another country. Uh, and she comes up to me and says kind of in a heavy accent, oh, I love I read your book, uh, Oasis Within. I love the book. I said, really? You loved it? And she said, yes, yes, yes. Every person in therapy in America should read this book. And I said, really? She said, every therapist in America should read this book. I said, really, why? Why do you say that? She said, what I've tried to explain to people with concepts, with high concepts, you have vivid images that appeal to the imagination, she said. I thought, wow, because at the beginning of the Oasis Within, they're crossing a desert, this group of 20 some men crossing the desert from Western Egypt to Cairo. And it's late summer, early fall. 
and they're at their first little oasis for a rest. And, and the boy is saying they, they're going to leave in a day or two. And Waleed, who just turned 13, is saying to his uncle Ali, he said, man, I wish we could stay here longer. I wish we didn't have to leave. And the old man says, well, you know, you can take an oasis with you wherever you go in life. And the boy says, well, what, what does that mean? And so he starts explaining. And in the course of explaining, which has many facets, one of the things he says, is, he says, have you ever seen a telescope? And remember, this is 1934, and this is people who came from a tiny village in Western Egypt. And the kid said, yeah, there was a guy visiting not long ago, and he had this telescope, and, and he let me look through it. And I was amazing. It was amazing. You know, little things got big and far away. Things came close. The old man said, when I was your age, a, a man visited the village, and he actually gave me a telescope. I don't know whatever happened to it, but it was like you. The first time I looked through it, I said, wow, things got big, and things got close. And then I turned the telescope around, and the boy says, I never thought to do that. He said, yeah, I looked through the big end and it shrank everything down to size. Close things look far away, big things look small. And I realized something. We all have in our hearts an emotional telescope. Whenever anything happens, it could be bad. We look through the end of the telescope that everybody else looks through and we blow it up and we make it bigger and we make it closer and we make it more imposing and scarier than it actually is. You need to learn to turn that telescope around, shrink things down to size. Give yourself some distance. And the boy says, wow, that never occurred to me before. That's amazing. And the old man says, and once you've done this enough, once you've learned the wisdom of perspective, you can just put your telescope down and look at things as they actually are and know you're big enough and powerful enough to deal with anything that comes your way. And so the, the tele, turning the telescope around, I can't tell you guys how many times this little mental image has been a tool for me where something happens, I say, oh no. The first thing I say is, oh no. And then I say, turn the telescope around. Mm -hmm. And it's like the emotions that went clenched up, just let go. It's amazing how an image in your imagination can make such a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have uh, so we have a clinical psychologist on next week on the podcast. Her name is Rachel Zoftness. What's so interesting about you telling us the story is it's actually linked to next week's show. So oh. because, yeah, so she specializes in chronic pain and there's a story that she consistently tells like in her writing on appearances that she does. So it's a story about a construction worker who actually gets stabbed with a nail. And what's so interesting about this, yeah, I, you guys might have heard this. So he gets, so he he's like working with a nail gun and essentially he like, you know, pushes the nail gun forward and then it pretty much stabs him in the foot and then he's in severe pain right he goes to the hospital he's like oh my god he's like i can't believe it am i gonna like lose my toe what's gonna happen right they take the shoe off and they're like oh actually the nail didn't even touch you it was between his toes but in his mind he was like not only just catastrophizing but he actually sensed the pain so yeah. that's what's so fascinating about a person's mind it's like it's not yeah. only that you kind of catastrophize and say to yourself well in the future this is you know this terrible thing is going to happen but he actually deeply felt the pain and he was like i am in the men's space like, I can't move my pod. He's like, like, yeah, he's like, he's like, it's scorching. The pain is insane. And then they take off the boot and then they're like, oh, actually, it didn't even touch your toe. It was right between. Truth is stranger than fiction, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you wouldn't make this up, right? My wife was a dental hygienist when I was in graduate school and she had patients who would yell in pain before she had actually touched them. So exactly yes. the same thing, you know, it's yep. the anticipation. You know? Yeah, as, as somebody who's, uh, I've, I've dealt with uh, chronic pain. Um, I had this, uh, I still have it, but it's more manageable now. Um, this TMJ issue, just with the oh, yeah, jaw yeah. clenching doing yeah. it during the day, doing it at night, waking up sore mouth, all this headaches, all that. What's interesting is, um, so in the beginning, I would also kind of catastrophize or have a narrative going on in my head of, of the pain and how, you know, how this is 
you know, something I need to do this or do that to remedy and all of that. But when I stopped kind of identifying with that story, when yeah. I started to be more, more or less present to the moment, uh, just taking it as it comes, it wasn't as bad. It was, yeah. it was still something I had to manage and figure out what to do. Yeah. But it wasn't as bad as my mind was making it out to be because I chose not go. to make that part of my identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there think, you go. Yeah, and yeah. then so, Tom, right, when we're turning a telescope around, right, a person may ask, okay, but what does that mean, right? How do I actually, like, what are the steps, right? How do I change my perspective and how do I go from, you know, from catastrophizing to now decatastrophizing and looking at the problem, you know, from a bigger scale or on a grander scale to a much smaller one? What would you tell them? Yeah, I would say um, across a lot of ancient philosophers, you get people using uh, visual imagery. Like uh, you get from Plato, you know, we're 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 tiny frogs around a big pond, you know, and 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 you get from um you 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 get from the Stoics, you get from like Marcus Aurelius. He's often wanting to say, what's this in the perspective of eternity and the immensity of the heavens and all this? What's this thing I'm going through? So they always. They always put up, it's almost like, how do you frame the situation? Mm -hmm. Do you put a tight little frame around the situation? Or do you put a gigantic frame around the situation? So the situation looks in context, relatively small. Uh, a lot of the ancient philosophers are doing that. I, I gave a talk in Bermuda once. It was one of my neighbors in North Carolina, I live in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was one of my neighbors who owned a company, um, uh, a reinsurance company in Bermuda. And um, he wanted me to come and give a talk to all his executives. And I said, well, you know, it's really hard to get to Bermuda from Wilmington, North Carolina. You got to take two or three airplanes. And it's like a five hour layover in Atlanta. He said, I will send a plane. And so they sent uh, one of their, comp uh, you know, a, a nice big jet. And I asked my son if he wanted to fly over with me. He said, yeah, sure. And and so on the way back, so I give my talk. We had this party at this guy's house. And his wife said, oh, they've upgraded you guys for your trip back to North Carolina. I'm thinking, what is this? We were on a Hawker 800, great, beautiful jet. Well, they've given you the biggest Gulfstream jet. It's got a dining table for eight people. And it's got, you know, it's you and your son and the, the founder's son. And you guys enjoy yourselves, you know. And so we get on the plane and the pilots say, well, there's a big storm over the Atlantic between here and Wilmington. But don't worry, we're going to fly over And so the plane takes off. And Gulfstream pilots, they love to show off. They take off almost like, you know. Elon Musk rocket ship or something. They and they take and they go to forty thousand feet. You know, commercial airlines don't go to forty thousand feet. They yeah. go to forty thousand feet, and we're looking down on the storm. You know, we're flying, we're fine. There's no turbulence. There's a storm that all the commercial guys are flying through. All the commercial airlines are flying through. We're above it. I have used that experience ever since as my visualization before I got the telescope. <laughs> I use that to say, you know what? I'm going to be like the, G, the G5 or whatever it was, G6. I'm going to fly over the storm. <laughs> uh, I, I've given myself, because looking at it, they have these huge windows and Gulfstream jets. I'm, I'm going to look down on this. I'm not going to be caught up in it. I'm going to give myself a transcendence. I'm going to rise above it. In fact, that word transcendence, and so many religious traditions as well as philosophical traditions, every wisdom tradition, tries to give us some tools for transcendence, for rising above the situation that we otherwise like a bear trap on your leg, you know, and they, they want to give us, they want to put us up in the tree, you know, they want to fly us up on the kite, they want to put us in the hot air balloon, they want to put us in the G6 or whatever. They want to give, get us a, a position where we can visualize ourselves as free of the worst exigencies of the situation. And so what I try to do is use visualization always helps, whether it's the telescope visualization itself, 
or whether it's going to one of these backup kind of visualizations. And it always makes a difference. That's the thing that, that gets me. We're such visual creatures, those of us who are sighted. We're such visual creatures. Uh, it's so powerful that if you have the right kind of visualization, which is why athletes always talk about visualization, right? It's not some woo-woo stuff. It's actually a very powerful use of the imagination. And what would that look like, I guess, in terms of taking a different perspective, right? So if you're visualizing it from the, I guess, from a smaller, a smaller kind of vantage point, or, you know, like a, maybe not smaller, but like a further vantage point, uh, how would then that change the way you conceptualize the problem? Yeah, um, first of all, it makes you freer to conceptualize the problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's like when the amygdala fireworks are going off, you're not at your best in terms of creative thinking about what exactly is this I face? And what are the possible ways of dealing with it? Like a minute ago, I talked about the art of self-control. You know, don't rush to judgment, value the right things, use your imagination. Well, right. the second art of change is the art of positive action. Just it starts off, govern your attitudes, mm -hmm. right? Uh, look for opportunities, uh, take the initiative. You can't govern your attitudes, look for opportunities and take the initiatives if, you're, if you're, your survival brain is screaming at you, right? So just getting some distance. The worst time I ever went through, I think I was in my early 20s. And uh, I was, I, I had a time in my life, late teens and early 20s, where I would get like super depressed. And I didn't even have thoughts of suicide and that kind of thing. I even wrote about it in a book called Making Sense of It All. But uh, the worst time I ever faced and the closest I ever came to the cliff when my emotions were so intensely worked up about a situation, I saw no way out. I could see no way out. I was blinded by the power. It's almost like the deer in the headlights. When a situation is too close to you and too powerfully glaring at you, you can't think, you can't see. You have no perspective. All of a sudden, I got immense curiosity about how it all turned out 20 years from now. How is this? Because it looked like a situation that couldn't possibly turn out except disastrously. And I said, I'm really curious, 10, 10, 20 years from now, it was like curiosity saved the cat, you know, it was like, uh, uh, it was the use of curiosity. It's like, oh, okay. I think you can start, uh, Seneca once said, one of the best things Seneca ever said, disaster is virtue's opportunity. Disaster is virtue's opportunity. Because what is a virtue? Virtue. Latin strength, mm -hmm. prowess, power. Mm -hmm. um, like Aristotle for his list of virtues, the central one was courage, because if you don't have the virtue of courage, you won't ex exemplify any of the others under pressure, like honesty, for example. Um, but disaster gives virtue an opportunity. It's, it's almost like, who was it? Was it Epictetus or was it? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was Epictetus who said, suppose you wanted to be an Olympic wrestler. Um, and you have resources. So you hired the very best coach, wrestling coach. And what's he going to do? He's going to make you go through these terrible exercises. He's going to push you and push you and push you. So you're in so much pain. You're in so much agony. And then when you think you can't take anymore, he's hired the best other wrestlers out there, the toughest guys he can find to come and spar with you. And they're going to throw you down. You're going to eat dirt. You're going to say, why is all this? Because he's building you up. He's building you up. He's giving you the strengths, the virtues you will need to be a championship wrestler. And, and then he said, Epictetus basically says, that's what life is doing for us all the time. We're in a contest much bigger than a, a wrestling contest. We're in a big contest, a big spiritual contest where we need to be trained 
and we need to go through some suffering and some struggles and challenges. We need to eat some dirt every now and then under the, the fist of an opponent. And, and Seneca actually had his own boxing example. He said, no boxer goes into the ring with confidence until after he's been beat black and blue. He's tasted his own blood. Uh, he said, then he knows what he can take. Then he knows mm -hmm. what he can do. Yeah, I love that. And now I guess if we are going to go back to the telescope analogy, which sort of like we're shifting the telescope back to the other side, the way I guess I would now see it based on what you said is that you're looking at all of these little moments. And even though obviously initially they seem so big, they're actually points to building not only confidence, but points to meaning, right? It's like yeah. and you building up your kind of resolve and you building up determination or sense of self. These are all just little minor points and minor kind of struggles like Sisyphus that you're constantly overcoming on a daily basis. And also empowering yourself. Mm -hmm to make a choice to see it from a different perspective because mm -hmm. you ultimately you have to make the choice to flip the telescope around or to have more of a grander view of things right the moment you do you're empowered to take further action mm -hmm. it's interesting yeah and yeah, it also kind of see yeah, well, and it also kind of seems like when you flip the telescope, right, you're also telling yourself, I'm able to do that. So yeah. I have the ability to manage this problem. So whereas now it was kind of like above me or, you know, sort of too much for me. Now, as I'm flipping it around, now it's something that like I can totally manage. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. It gives you a sense of agency, gives you a sense of power, right? Even if you don't have control, you have some degree of power or influence over the situation. And when you become a person who practices the skill enough so that it becomes a habit, right. you just become a person who does it. It's 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 awesome. It's like um, I started at the age of 58. I decided, okay, a lot of guys in my neighborhood who are older than me, I'm 69 now, a lot of guys who are older can barely walk down the street. I mean, they're in terrible shape. They're retired executives and spent all their lives sitting down. They didn't exercise enough, all this kind of thing. And I said, I want to get in shape. I want to go to the gym. I'd never been really a gym rat, you know, but I don't go to the gym. And so, so I started exercising. I, I, I set a goal. I'm going to go to the gym every day, seven days a week for two hours a day for a year and see wow. if it makes a difference. And I did, I did exactly that. And so a guy come, I, I seen a guy about my age one day on the bench press. I'd never done bench press before, never. And so I see a guy in bench press, he's about my age. He's got, like I count the weights, he's got 85 pounds. It's a Smith machine, so it's kind of guiding the things, but he's, it's plates put on there. And so he leaves it on when he walks away. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do, he's putting his weights back. So I say, okay, I, maybe I'm gonna try that. And so I did like five lifts and I, I, I go to 10, it's 85 pounds, including the bar, okay? Mm -hmm. And so I do that the next day and the next day and the next day. And, and somebody says, you're not supposed to do this every day. They saw it and see me and they should give yourself a break a couple of days. Okay. And so a guy comes up to me and he says uh, to me, and he turns out to be the best shape of any guy I've ever met in my life. He's 10 years younger than me. He says, you make more noise than anybody else in this gym. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're the only guy in this gym who's really trying. When he said, you make more noise than anybody else in the gym, I say, you should hear me get out of bed in the morning and walk to the bathroom. I mean, I decided I want to make a noise in here rather than there because I was stiff. I felt like an old man at the age of 58. So he said, I want to be your workout partner. I said, why? He said, you're the only guy in here who's really trying. Plus, you can lift more than 80, 85 pounds. I've seen you do this, but let's put on 10 more pounds right now. Okay, let's do it. And next day, 10 more pounds. Uh, two days later, 10 more pounds. Okay. A couple of days later, you're looking strong today. I think you need to put on more weight. And so this guy is coming to me every day. I see you, he said, as lifting a whole lot more than this. Let's put on a little bit more. And so we do this for years, for years. At the age of 63, I'm benching 315 pounds. Wow. Now I had started at 85 pounds thinking maybe I'll get up to 150. It wouldn't even occurred to me. That's the thing about goals. That's the other side of goal setting. If somebody said to me, you need to, at age 58, 
see me with 85 pounds. Here's your goal, Tom, 315 pounds. That would have been just stupid. Why don't you just say lift a Buick instead? You know, I mean, I'm not lifting 350, but yeah. I set these incremental goals by this guy using my imagination. I see you doing more than this. I, th I think you could do, and he's building my confidence, right? He, 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 he's suggesting things I wouldn't have thought of. And he's, you know, consistency. This guy's name is Don. He's so consistent. One day it was going to, the weather forecast was terrible. And we finished a hard workout. And he says, I'll see you in here tomorrow. I said, it was supposed to rain. And we're in the gym still. I said, it's supposed to rain really hard tomorrow. And you know what he said? Not in imagine. here. He yeah. said, not in yeah. here. Right? <laughs> so I said, now this is a guy who has habituated himself to using his telescope well about everything. I want to be like that guy. And he's the guy who coached me up to 315 pounds, uh, at which I did that for a while. And then I hurt my shoulder and I had to back off. But I mentioned that because it has to become a habit. Whatever tools we use from philosophy that we derive from the philosophy, psychology, they all used to be the same. You know, it was it was it was natural philosophy, which became physics, biology and anthropology and all that chemistry. Or it, it was a moral philosophy, which became the various, you know, anthropology and psychology and what now call philosophy. But we, wherever we get our tools from the wisdom traditions, we need to habituate ourselves to become skilled practitioners. So we're the guy who just turns the telescope, that telescope flips around so fast, or we get to the point where Ali says, you don't even need it. Put it down. You're good. You know, mm -hmm. uh, nothing's going to shake you. Um, that's awesome. And I've seen huge strides in my own life in that direction. It's things that would freak me out 20 years ago. I, I'm like, okay, we can deal with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it seems like the personal touch was really important for you because without that trainer, it probably would have been nearly impossible for you to have gotten there on your own. Yeah. And he's a guy, he's a food services guy who surfs every day or 285 days a year, typically, at least. He skateboards most days. He'll get up in the morning and do 200 push-ups. He, he, he runs five miles, then comes to the gym and pushes me to, to the point of, he says, okay, Tom, let's, let's see how fast we can do 200 push-ups. It's like, yeah. really? <laughs> I love that. And you know, it's interesting, just like, uh, and not to get into this too deeply, man, but I hate this about working out is that like the bench press is the worst thing for your shoulders. The same thing happened to you. You also injured your shoulder, I think, through the bench press. I injured my shoulder because I was doing your crazy shoulder <laughs> workouts. Okay. <laughs> so this guy's like, my, I don't know if you could tell from the video, probably the shoulders you could tell are a little bit built. <laughs> But otherwise, this guy's huge. Like you can't tell from the video. So I, I also go to the gym. I, I made a habit of going to the gym every single day um, for years in a row, actually, to, yeah, to sort of yeah. build the discipline. I used to be yeah. somebody who uh, really lazy, super neurotic, <laughs> really like who I am now and who I used to be. It's like worlds apart. Yeah. But yeah. But doing these uh, these things every single day. Yeah. And it builds not just like it, you build a habit, but you also build confidence. Yeah. When you see yeah. yourself doing something that you told yourself before, like, oh, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not that kind of person. But then you put your mind to it and you see yourself do it over and over again. And then it lets you think, like, what, what else is possible? What else can I do right. every yeah. single day? What, yeah. what are the little things that I can do in the course of a year that maybe, you know, each day there's a 0.1% change, but by yeah. the end of the year or by the end of year two, year five, what kind of, what do you become uh, from all those yeah. little, little changes? Right, right, right. right. But um, sorry, yeah, I, I, no, I distracted awesome. from everything. Uh, 
I, that's yeah. great to, to learn that about you guys uh, because, you know, Plato, of course, his real name wasn't Plato, it was Aristocles, and Plato meant big shoulders, you know, he's a, he yeah. was a championship wrestler, right? Yep. And yep. Uh, yeah. it, it's like, um, it's like you have to, wisdom is supposed to be not just a bunch of aphorisms in our head, wisdom is supposed to be embodied insight, right? I mean, I, I, a guy, a college guy from Spain visited me once and we had breakfast together at this little dive place near my house and and we sit down and his first question to me is not you know what's good on the menu his first question is what is wisdom and I'm mm. thinking wow you know <laughs> they get right to the point I said well, wisdom is first of all I said wisdom is embodied insight for living you know it, it, it it's it's perspective it's this it's that and then I came up with something I'd never said before never even thought before I said wisdom is guidance and guardrails and he said what's that and I said well guidance is like a sense of direction a sense of what you should be doing where you should be going and 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 he says what are guardrails because he's not a native English speaker I said yeah you're in the mountains you go around a curvy road this metal railing that keeps your car from going oh I said wisdom is guidance positive and guardrails protective mm -hmm. and and they have to be in you your heart not just in 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 your head and that's what you guys are talking about it's only through habit it's only through repetition it's only through changing uh, your lifestyle even when you don't feel like doing it right like right. going to the me a guy who hardly ever went to the gym going to the gym two hours a day for a year seven days a week it was like crazy commitment but most people have a sense of possibility for their lives it's like thin bouillon and you develop a thick sense of possibility for your life right rich sense of possibility if i can do this what yeah. else can i do you know um and you know I, i'm not going to go to the level of hype of all the motivational guys who say if you could do that you could do anything you know <laughs> and do it yeah no i'm sorry i'm not gonna out dunk you know uh the the, the current nba players at my age of 69 but guess what the future is much richer than most people think. Possibility is much richer and you deal with change much better if you can come to understand that. I love that. Wow, man. That's, I think that's such a like wonderful end point too. Like that was perfect. And by the way, I, that is probably the best definition of wisdom I've ever heard. Oh, mm. good. Thank you. Thank you. I, because you can, you can look for a definition of wisdom and everybody uses the word, but nobody really defines it. And when you try to define it, it's kind of hard, you know, you have to kind of really work at it. Uh, and, and, and that's what, that's what I've come up with that just seems to me to capture the fact that you can't say he's a wise man who lives like a fool. You can't say that about anybody. You could right. say he's got a lot of wise sayings, you know, he says a lot of smart things, but wisdom is, is the kind of thing that's got to be embodied. And there's the yin and the yang of it. There's that, there's that guidance and the guardrails, you know, so it's, it's, it's an awesome thing. It's helped me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Alan, final questions for Tom before we go, man. Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Oh, yeah. Come come to uh, Tom V, as in Victor, my middle name, Tom V. Morris at AOL. Well, TomVMorris.com. Come to the website, TomVMorris.com. You can follow me. You can click the little things to follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on, I think, Instagram is on there. Um, I, my email is on there. If, if a, a viewer has any questions, I encourage people to write me. I love getting questions, you know. Um, and I try to post almost every morning a short philosophical thought about something. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I'll post it on Facebook. And if I sit and look at it for 20 seconds, it doesn't seem stupid. I'll say, okay, I'll also put it on LinkedIn and I'll maybe I'll try to do a qu quicker version on Twitter. And I love the conversations that starts because guys like you, you guys, I, this has been a wonderful hour for me. But if I had a chance to 
to hear your wisdom and to hear your stories on a regular basis and, and kind of give and take on LinkedIn, on Facebook, wherever, that just enriches my life as a philosopher. It helps me understand so much better the things we all grapple with. Yeah, absolutely. And where can we find you on social media? Uh, uh, at Tom V. Morris, uh, at AOL, at Tom V. Morris. But Tom, TomVMorris.com is the best place on the About page to click all the social media icons and just come and, and join with me uh, across the board. Yeah. And I'll be posting, of course, all the links under the video mm -hmm. here and everywhere else we post the podcast. So no worries. I got you. Yeah, yeah, Tom, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, man. This was such oh, a Oh, you guys story, are man. great. Leon, uh, Alan, you guys are awesome. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for the wonderful people you bring into everybody's lives. I'm sure you guys are on a learning curve that is like that G, uh, G6 takeoff, you know, just with <laughs> yeah. the people you meet and the things you think about. And I'm just, uh, just very gratified to be included in this great adventure you guys are having. Absolutely, man. I mean, look, uh, you know, in the future, any books you come on, you're definitely welcome back. Anytime wow, I love that. That'd be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I will right, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. You too. Okay. I got to say. Epic. Awesome. Yeah. Like really awesome. Uh, so guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the, hit bell. the bell. And guys, thanks so much for watching. Again, uh, this is Tom's book, Plato's Lemonade Stand. Uh, it's available on Amazon, and you can go to his website uh, for more information. See you guys next time.